listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. New York officials continue to see the spread of polio in wastewater systems. It's now been found in Brooklyn, in Queens. One man who contracted the disease has paralysis in his legs. It's something that longtime Palola resident Lee Waidu can relate to. He recently celebrated the first birthday of his grandson, who lives in London, where earlier this year, health officials discovered the polio virus in wastewater. They are urging children between one and five to be vaccinated for the disease, for which there is no cure. Lee Waidu reflects on his life with polio and remembers how President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who contracted polio as an adult, was left paralyzed and how he didn't want to be photographed in a wheelchair. Lee Waidu said he too fought hard not to be wheelchair bound. Franklin Delano Roosevelt personified polio and its unpredictability. As a young man, he was the picture of health, born to great privilege in New York's upper crust. In 1920, he was a shining star of the Democratic Party and a vice presidential candidate. One year later, FDR came down with polio at the relatively advanced age of 39. It's thought he contracted the virus while swimming with a troop of Boy Scouts on a summer vacation. He would forever be paralyzed from the waist down. Polio. It had the power to paralyze a president and mobilize an entire nation toward an unprecedented public health response. Doctors Jonas Salk and Albert Sabin worked tirelessly to find a vaccine. Both succeeded, but if not for money from the March of Dimes, none of that would have been possible. Give every dime and dollar that you can spare to the 1954 March of Dimes. Polio is no respecter of people. The rich, the poor, the strong, the weak, no one is immune. Lee Waidu was born a healthy child, but contracted polio at nine months here in Hawaii, the only one of six siblings to be afflicted. It was before the vaccine was developed, yet his life has not been about the loss of limbs, but the use of what he has and living a life of well-being and purpose. His braces and arm crutches got him around throughout his professional life and in political service. Later, a bout of post-polio robbed him of his upper body strength. Today, he uses a motorized scooter. He remains fearful of polio's return. It's a worry, and we need to eradicate polio forever. It's a motor nerve vengeance. It kills the motor nerves, and atrophy occurs with the muscles. And it can happen uh, from the bulbar upper body situation down through the legs, and it's largely been through the legs, for most people, originally called infantile paralysis. We all know it by the great effort of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who had it as a adult, and yet he ran for president and won with two heavy leg braces from a wheelchair that people never saw. My own story is I was born a healthy baby, uh, nine pounds, started to walk at nine months of age, and began to talk. Then it came down with a high fever, and they say I didn't move from my neck down. Um, my mother, under whole family, understandably besides themselves, uh, but they got me lots of masseuses people to massage me. Uh, the ones I remember is Mrs. Burgau, uh, 
and that apparently kept the muscles alive uh, so that the motor nerves could begin to either come back or replicate uh, tendrils that brought back some connection to the muscles. So I grew up with a strong upper body and weak legs, uh, two braces and arm crutches. Well, Leroy, I know you recently shared with me that you use a, a wheelchair now, but for as long as I've known you, you know, you use those braces to get around when you were at the Honolulu City Council. You know, you were out there in the community just doing the work. Yeah, thank goodness. Polio taught me a lot of lessons. It was a gift in many ways. Otherwise, I'd be like my brothers and sisters, normal. <laughs> but I think polio, as everyone with some affliction recognizes, they've got to find another way. If they're going to be alive, then adapt and don't become extinct. And for me, it was finding different ways to do things, and especially through the love I received throughout my entire life, parents, brothers, sisters, school, friends, etc. I wanted to give back. So that's been my main motivation without recognizing it, but subconsciously, how can I serve? How can I be of value to other people? Because I recognize people gave me value with their love and support and consoling comfort. Well, what are you thinking when you see the headlines today? Because, you know, we're seeing it in the wastewater uh, in New York City. They were saying that it may have been there since the earlier part of this year, only just detected this summer. You have a young grandchild, you know, so, so what are your fears at this stage? Everybody, be attentive and make sure you get your booster polio shots or your polio shots as a young child. They say get it at two, four months old for my grandson, but actually he's in London. And uh, from one year to uh, eight years old, get their last shot. Adults should get it if they're going into the areas of wild polio, which is Afghanistan, Pakistan. I, I'll look around to see if I should get it also because polio has a number of mutations, I imagine. So I, even I want to be prevented from yet a further polio. Well, I just learned of something recently, post-polio. What can you share with our listeners about that? Post-polio has a syndrome of weakened muscles, as I have. I thought I was just lower body polio affected on my legs. But it turns out from 2004 onward, uh, I couldn't stand without, even with my braces, but I couldn't stand without pain, enormous pain. So I couldn't walk and my shoulders wouldn't bear my weight because my shoulders had pain. And what happens is as we age 15, 20, and for me, for me 55 years later, the weakness takes over. And nobody knew what it was when it started even I, until the doctor demanded that I get off my crutches and into a wheelchair, which is not my self-image. But after five years, he prevailed. I 
love it now in a power wheelchair. <laughs> I and guess it gives you, yeah, a different kind of mobility. Yeah, and anybody with an affliction has to adapt and evolve from that adaptation. This is the best time in the history of the world to have a disability. We can live a very full life, and I am striving to do with hand controls on my car. I've been driving since I was 14 and a half, no accident, but my right leg was too weak to start feeling confident about switching to the brake till I forced myself to get hand controls, and life is fabulous again. <laughs> I'm independent fully. Well, now, has your grandchild been vaccinated for polio? He will be. Mm-hmm. My daughter has been reading about it in the London sewers. That's where they, they live. And, yes, she's very cognizant of doing that. Gosh. Anything else that you want to share with our listeners just about, you know, your experience and, how, you know, how you lost your ability to use your legs? Life is a balance. And for every bad, there's a good. And the good is a an awareness of never never lose sight of the goodness of things, no matter how bad it is. And keep up, be persistent, do what you can do, and forget what you can't do, and go surfing, which it was for me. Surfing changed my entire attitude of life. Wipe out, get back on the board, and go again. Love nature. So say balance, strive, patience, kindness, love each other. Aloha kekahi kekahi. I guess as as we learn more about, you know, where it's spreading and how to safeguard ourselves, you know, I, I know the rates in Hawaii they said are, are are pretty low. Diligence is necessary so that it doesn't spread like wildfire here if nobody gets vaccinated. So I encourage everyone to be attentive and get your polio vaccine, especially the babies, but adults too, if Mm -hmm. you're traveling through the the wild virus areas, because we can extinguish it. The Rotary Club International has done a fabulous job of distributing polio vaccines around the world, though in the wild areas of polio, some volunteers have been killed, so it's not a light matter. We have to eliminate polio forever from everyone in the world. And then where did you get it? Did you get it here? or were you, yeah, Was your I family abroad or what? I got it here in Honolulu. I'm one of six children. I'm the only one that got it. I'm a Kama'aina, we're a fifth generation, originally from China, but naturalized as citizens of the kingdom of Hawaii early on healthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, life was good. And thankfully, my parents let me grow up normally. Then you were nine months? That's correct. The polio pandemic of the early 50s kind of shocked them. So right. I'd be one of the oldest surviving polio old generation victims. The March of Dimes calls it survivors. Survivors. And, okay. But I never heard of it until I became a member of the National Board of March of Dimes. Through John Henry Feeling, polio is just one of the many afflictions that we all have in one way or another. But yeah. if we all hang on to this old local saying of aloha kekahi kekahi, love one another uniquely, individually, 
mm. without stereotypes. Yeah, acceptance. Bad legs mm-hmm. that I couldn't <laughs> run. But look for the character of the person and the qualities that make them unique. And that, I think, is the heart of Aloha. We've been hearing from Lee Waidu, a Honolulu attorney who served as Honolulu City Councilman for 12 years. He was reflecting on his life with polio as a crippling disease has now resurfaced in the U.S. despite its eradication 30 years ago. The Palolo resident served on the National Board of March of Dimes and credits another former city council member, John Henry Felix, for encouragement when he, due, faced adversity. Keep listening, as up next is an interview with Felix about his work with the Salk Institute for Biological Studies, whose founder, Dr. Jonas Salk, created the polio vaccine. vaccine helped to eradicate the crippling disease in the U.S. some 30 years ago. Dr. Jonas Salk's announcement of the vaccine came on the CBS radio as the best defense against the disease that paralyzed both babies and adults. Newsreels at the time hailed the development. We flash back to that time. An historic victory over a dread disease is dramatically unfolded at the University of Michigan. Here, scientists usher in a new medical age with the monumental reports that proved the salt vaccine against crippling polio to be a sensational success. It's a day of triumph for 40-year-old Dr. Jonas E. Salk, developer of the vaccine. He arrives with Basil O'Connor, head of the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, which financed the tests. Hundreds of reporters and scientists from all over the nation gather for the momentous announcement. Proudly on hand, too, are Mrs. Salk and the son who received the first injections. Chief evaluator Dr. Thomas Francis pronounces the vaccine tests up to 90% effective, and modest Dr. Salk answers newsmen's questions. The great wealth of events that has accumulated in the experiences of so many is well represented in the report made this morning. While the contribution of some may seem greater than that of others in one way or another, This gigantic experiment is symbolic of the equally great foundations, both scientific and philanthropic, without which it could not have been conceived or executed. And the entire world heralded the discovery which assured an end to one of mankind's most dread diseases. Honolulu businessman and philanthropist John Henry Felix knew Dr. Jonas Salk and was intimately involved in the history of the Salk Institute of Biological Studies and its research goals. Felix remembers going door-to-door with his mother, a passionate supporter of the March of Dimes effort to prevent the spread of polio. Parents feared for their children's health because of the lasting paralysis that polio brought with it. Well, my mother was very concerned about the high incidence of polio. She was a a very committed uh, fundraiser for the March of Dimes in 1938, which was 
the year the March of Dimes was founded by our 32nd president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, that she was a very avid supporter of the president and uh, his efforts to uh, control polio and finally develop a vaccine, which was funded by the uh, March of Dimes, which got its name, by the way, from a famed Fordville actor, and uh, the name remains to this very day. And so people just march up to that front door and ask for dimes. Correct. And we had uh, little uh, cups at the restaurants and other places where people congregate so that they can make their contributions uh, there, uh, dimes and dollars, whatever they had available. So that's a very personal connection to the cause. I don't know what you're thinking these days, you know, as we see that, you know, there are cases that are popping up. You know, it's been found in the wastewater in London and New York. And in New York, Mm -hmm. it's in counties where the the vaccination rates are low. These viruses are with us all the time. It's imperative that we're vigilant and uh, take advantage of the uh, vaccines that are available, especially in third world countries where they uh, are very reluctant to be vaccinated. And so talk about the connection with the March of Dimes and the Salk Institute. Well, the March of Dimes triumphed over uh, polio by developing two vaccines, one by um, Jonas Salk, uh, which was uh, the vaccinated uh, technique, and the other by um, Dr. Albert Sabin, who uh, developed the oral vaccine. And uh, that was more acceptable in third world countries. When the March of Dimes finally triumphed over polio, they decided to found a uh, research institute that would work on very basic research that would uh, develop vaccines to uh, cure uh, other maladies. And uh, that's one of the foundings of the Salk Institute in La Jolla, California. The March of Dimes came up with the initial funds to make uh, the institute possible, $80 million back in the 19, 1960s. And uh, the city of San Diego uh, gifted the property, which the institute is currently located, which was a very generous contribution. The institute to this day is researching uh, other opportunities to cure various uh, diseases. And you served on that board for a, a very long time. Uh, yes. I was the chairman of the March of Dimes for uh, five years and the chairman of the Salk Institute for five years. I worked very closely with uh, Jonas Salk and uh, Francis Crick, uh, who uh, I appointed president, and uh, the man who uh, co-discovered DNA. Well, I remember as a child, you know, getting those little sugar cubes. <laughs> you know, this week we're still hearing from some of our listeners about how they've lived with polio. We talked earlier this week with uh, former Honolulu City Councilman Lee Waidu, who credits mm-hmm. your encouragement as he lived with polio. Yes, he was one of my uh, Eagle Scouts involved with a program that I had, a Boy Scout program, hotel management. And he was a senior at the uh, at the time, class president, outstanding student. Uh, he is a perfect example of triumph over adversity. Yes, and he really treasures uh, that encouragement uh, when he was young, right? He went on to Harvard. He was involved in public service, you know, for a long time, and he's still involved in, in, the, in mm-hmm. the community. I understand he's writing a book about the Palolo Chinese home. Uh, so very active like you are, you know, and, and so, gosh, I mean, what's your hope as you, you know, hear about the resurgence of, of cases in the U.S. when, you know, we eradicated it decades ago? 
We have to make the people of our nation more aware of uh, the dangers that uh, lurk in our water supply and uh, sewer system. And these viruses are with us always, and uh, we always have to be vigilant in uh, addressing them. BYU is a perfect example of, of triumph over adversity, and uh, I admire him. Uh, we served together on the city council. He served for 14 years, I served for 16, and we have a lot in common. But what he's done to um, better relations between the U.S. and China is very admirable. He's, to this day, he's working on that effort, and I uh, admire him for that. I applaud his efforts. Well, there are many in the community that applaud your efforts and your perseverance with the many causes that uh, you've mm -hmm. taken up. You know, coming through this pandemic, and seeing the concern that people have over vaccines, is there, I don't know, any final thoughts that you want to leave with our listeners mm -hmm. about polio and our history here in the islands? Mm -hmm. We have to make people more aware of um, the, what lurks uh, in, in the uh, shadows. Uh, these viruses are with us always. We must be ever vigilant. Our Board of Health, our elected officials uh, have to be very aware this uh, danger and have to make the population extremely aware and make available vaccines that will control spread. Well, we thank you for your time this morning just to get the word out and to refresh people's memories about, you know, what we lived through and all the progress that we did make, you know, over... We have made progress, yes. And uh, the, the Salk Institute to this day is looking for cures because their motto, I had a part in developing the motto, it's where cures begin. And we have to be vigilant because there's a lot out there that is lurking in the shadows. Well, we thank you again, John Henry, for your time. Well, thank you very much, and you have a very nice day. At 92, John Henry Felix is still very engaged in our community. The former Honolulu City Council member, businessman, and philanthropist served on the boards of both the Salk Institute and the March of Dimes. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally based customer care team committed to problem solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Richard Strozzi Heckler. I'm author of Embodying the Mystery. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about somatic wisdom, 
for emotional, energetic, and spiritual awakening. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii International Film Festival's Fall Festival, with films from around the world opening November 3rd online and in person at Consolidated Kahala Theater. Full schedule at HIFF.org. immunization rate against polio sits at 88%, putting us at fourth from the bottom compared to states across the country. Ronald Malahadia is the immunization program manager for the state health department. He spoke about the growing concern officials have to get those rates up again so our keiki are protected from a disease that has no cure and can leave people with permanent paralysis. Definitely a lot of concerns. The last report of a polio case here in Hawaii was in 1978. So it's been a long time since we've last had an actual polio case here in the islands. And part of the reason how that occurred is because of the increased vaccinations that were available to us and continues to be available to us in the islands. And one of the most important things is that our schools for entry into schools are requiring polio, MMR, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, hepatitis B, et cetera. And so that really allows for a level playing field for all of our keiki and our people here in Hawaii to ensure that they are protected against vaccine preventable diseases, in, and especially in this polio situation or case that has occurred in New York. So it is something of a, a concern for us, but Hawaii has, for the most part been really good at vaccinating not only our kids at two years of age but also when they have to enter into school so we're normally in our 90s low to middle 90 percent coverage rate for the state but what we have seen especially with covid pandemic is a drop in our coverage rate and we're now in the high 80s and the concern really is is that we want to make sure to try to increase that back up again and get it up to the 90s where we want to try to really ensure that our population is protected against this particular disease. Interesting of note is that we know smallpox has been eradicated and polio is next on the list of a vaccine preventable disease that hopefully will be eradicated but there's a lot of effort and work to try to get to that point in time. When I checked this morning our rate was like 88 percent. I think nationally you know it's in the 90s and I don't know what you can share with us just about the breakdown, if you've got the breakdown, you know, of how many kindergartners 
you know, school-aged children, you know, does that cover? Do we have those numbers? We have an assessment that we normally do on a cluster and a sample of our kindergartners, and we're looking at around 88% for the school year 2020-2021. And as we are in this new school year of 2022-2023, we're going to be evaluating the children that come in and look at their vaccination. So we'll have updated information. But I think the drop has definitely occurred and I think we're not the only ones here in Hawaii but the rest of the nation with COVID happening and our parents being concerned about bringing their children to potentially be exposed to COVID if they do go into clinics to get their children up to date and then also some of the clinics having closed because of the lack of staffing personnel and and being able to provide the service to our population. So there are other reasons why that drop has occurred. And I also think that there could be definitely misinformation about vaccines in general that have caused parents to be hesitant in wanting to get their children vaccinated. So all of that, sadly, within the pandemic has caused a drop, but we really want to try to refocus and get, especially with this case in New York, to refocus back and increase our coverage and really have our keiki, more importantly, vaccinated and anybody that has not been vaccinated to try to provide them the information necessary to, so that they do get vaccinated. Well, I think in New York, in some of those communities where they did have the case of a man who was paralyzed, I think the rates were like in the 60s, you know, very low for the children. Mm -hmm. And there's a a big push now, um, not just in New York, but also in London to vaccinate children below the age of 10, you know, I think Mm -hmm. uh, one to 10, just because, uh, you know, there's no cure for polio and all the efforts are in prevention. Yes. And I don't know if, I mean, I think you you can recall some of the pictures when polio was Googled as the iron lung machines, right, that caused paralysis and needing the ability to be able to breathe. So those pictures are really horrific in a lot of ways, and it is preventable. And so that's really, and as you mentioned, in some of these communities where the, the actual case occurred, really low rates of vaccinations, and I believe the individual himself was not vaccinated. And so without having the vaccine, you're then allowing the virus to come in and then potentially cause what we're now seeing as paralytic uh, polio. But also polio, there's instances where polio is non-paralytic, and that also could spread to other individuals in the community that are not protected. So it's really important, and I think our schools have done an incredible job, especially with the requirements that we have, to ensure that our keiki are given the vaccines where they need to be. And again, that's where we need to try to work with our pediatricians our doctors to identify individuals that have not been vaccinated to try to answer their questions and hopefully increase our coverage rate here in Hawaii. But the idea with these mandatory vaccinations is the children are supposed to have that before they actually walk into the classroom. Before entry, we normally require the individuals to come in, but there are instances where appointments, especially for doctors, there are pediatricians, are booked 
you know, two, three months in advance, and either a parent just recently moved and is not able to update their child's vaccinations. So they're allowed to be able to come into school, but with appointments in place. And so our school health aides and health assistants are monitoring the children's vaccination information and then will ping or remind parents that they have not submitted their child's vaccinations. And if they don't after several attempts, then the child is excluded from school. So there are definite mechanisms in place to ensure that vaccines are provided in the school setting. And what if you don't know if you've been fully vaccinated? I know there's an immunization registry, but my understanding is that, you know, not all the states have this online service where you can just go and type in your name and, you know, get a snapshot. We don't have that here, right? Well, we have the immunization registry here in Hawaii, but it only started, you know, not too long ago. And so a lot of the data or information of vaccine records, now you recall my mom and I actually have mine, my yellow card mm-hmm. <laughs> that most people yes, have, I have one of those. Of their vaccinations, right? And sadly, sometimes those get lost or destroyed. And a lot of the old data were all written down. And so oftentimes we try to go back to the pediatrician or the physician that attends to the child as the first course of action to try to identify if the child has been vaccinated. The other thing that could be done are testing or doing antibody testing to see if there are individuals. But if there is no documentation and there's no detection, then the only other option is to get revaccinated again to show that the individual has the protection needed. When did the registry get started? I believe in 2009, I believe. Okay. Um, it, it predated before I started with the immunization program here in Hawaii. So I think around 2008, 2009, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, but if you're in that system, you should yeah. be able to type in your name and you should see whether you're fully uh, vaccinated or not? We do okay. not currently have a feature for individuals to go into the system to access it. What they would need to do is contact the immunization program here, the Hawaii Department of Health, okay. and then we will then be able to do the search for them, and then whatever information is acquired, we will then share that with the individual requesting for that. That was Ron Balahadia, Immunization Program Manager for the State Health Department, talking with us about how Hawaii's vaccination rates for polio have dramatically declined. We're now below the national average and fourth from the bottom when compared to states across the country. He urges families to get up to date with their polio shots. While many states do have an online system to access their polio records, Hawaii does not yet offer this service. We crave connections. It's human nature to want to know what's happening in your community, in the news, and with each other. And we need those connections now more than ever. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio helps keep you connected, engaged, and enriched. 
Wherever you are, whatever's happening in the world, stay connected on the HPR app or ask your smart speaker to play Hawaii Public Radio. on the media? Obesity is cited as a risk factor for COVID-19, but maybe some of that risk lies outside those patients' bodies. People with obesity are treated differently by the medical professions. Plus, how folks with a little extra adiposity were knocked down a few pegs on the hierarchy of humanity on the next On the Media from WNYC. Beginning this evening at 7 You're tuned to member-supported Hawaii Public Radio, KHPR Honolulu, KKUA Wailuku, KANO Hilo, KHPH Kailua Kona, KIPL Lihue, and KJHF Kualapu'u. Our next story is about former First Lady Beatrice Burns. We talk with Emmy Tamimbong, who was married to Burns' son, the late Hawaii Chief Justice James Jim Burns. Emmy has fond memories of her mother-in-law, who was a polio survivor. Hawaii's First Lady Beatrice Burns was a nurse who lived with polio and hosted dignitaries from her wheelchair. Here's Emmy sharing Mrs. Burns' story. She was such a fighter and... Her attitude was unlike anyone else. And, you know, when you were with her, because I had the privilege of helping Jim and caregiving her in her final years, and so I spent a lot of time at their home where I live now. And, you know, you just you just forget that she was in a wheelchair. You don't see it. And it's because of her humor and, and just the, the way she talks about life and what well, I'm starting backwards, but in her, you know, the autumn of her years, you know, she talked about meeting all these celebrities, and she was very, very impressed with Mrs. Kennedy, Jacqueline Kennedy. She had to have a dinner with them at Washington Place, and she orchestrated, she collaborated the dinner, and Mrs. Kennedy asked her, does she have any, I don't know, any difficulties being first lady and all that with her, and she says, no, no, she says, I guess the question was something like, the wheelchair isn't in the way. She goes, oh, of course not. The wheelchair is what gets me around, you know? <laughs> and, and she even explained to Mrs. Kennedy that, yes, there's three floors, I guess, in, at Washington Place, but they built an elevator, and that elevator is still there. So that was some of the more recent things. And, of course, she got close to the Johnsons, Lyndon Bird and Lyndon Johnson, and I re- recalled having to tell certain people that she had died. And one card came in from Mrs. Chiang Kai-shek. So she had this wide range of correspondence. And and so that's the backstory of, you know, how she lived in her latter years widowed because, you know, the governor died. And I remember my husband used to say, my mother lived in this house for 12 years after my dad died. And so, 
there's no excuse, you know, you can do it. Because she did everything from a wheelchair. <laughs> and of course, I felt terrible. But getting back to the very, very beginning, Mrs. Burns was born in Oregon, came to Hawaii as a nurse, was stationed at Schofield Barracks, and then she moved around a little bit. And she was, I think, did some work at Fort Shafter. This is in the 30s now. And how she met the governor was they had a picnic, and it was not a blind date, and they met at the picnic, and they kind of took to each other. And I guess that's kind of how the romance ensued. They were married in the early 30s, and she had her first child, John Jr., in 1932. And then her second child was Maribeth, her daughter, a year or two later. And then after those two children, she was seven months pregnant and felt her legs tightening up and couldn't understand what was going on. And the doctors pretty much told her to abort. And her husband was a very strong Catholic. And, of course, her belief system, too, was that she wouldn't. Now, this was in the 30s. And... And she said, no, I'm going to try. I'm going to give birth. So she did. And the doctors all told Governor Burns, he was not governor then, okay, but he told Mr. and Mrs. Burns, you're going to lose your wife and you're going to lose your son, so you should abort to at least save your wife. And Mrs. Burns wouldn't. So she went along, and it was, again, early signs. Her legs were sort of, you know, not working well and, and then finally she gave birth, and the child's name was Robert. He died, I guess, within a day. And she, you know, was, of course, both she and, and John Burns was extremely heartbroken. And at the time, you know, they were living in Kalihi on Rose Street, which is, like, deep in the heart of Texas, you know. It's real in the local area. And St. John's Church is just a stone's throw and I remember one day my husband Jim said, come on, we'll look for my brother's grave. It took a while. We went to Kalihi, but, you know, it was overgrown, but we found it. We found Robert's gravesite, and I know that Jim was extremely emotional when we found it. So fast forward, though, after her first not-so-good pregnancy and the death, eventual death of the child, she got pregnant again. And this is with Jim. And, of course, all the doctors in Hawaii, in Honolulu, said, abort, abort, abort. The governor and Mrs. Burns said, no, 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 no. And so they came across a masseuse named Seishiro Okazaki, and he had nickel restoration massage. And in modern day, everyone went there. Anyway, so this man, Seishiro Okazaki, was known for bringing jiu-jitsu to America. But he told the governor, don't abort, I'm going to take care of her. So for six months, he had her on her back, made her bend her knees, and she would scream and yell, and he'd go, okay, scream louder, scream louder. And, and she would, but she would bend enough to move her muscles. And then he had the seaweed. It was called wakase seaweed with, mixed with water, and he would put it on her every day for six months. And she was able to give birth on April 19th, 1937, to my husband, who was a healthy, strapping eight-pound baby. 
And so she had been diagnosed with polio, but just oh, yes. persisted. Yes. When, you know, when she had been feeling all that muscle strangeness from the child that died in that time, yes, she knew she was with polio. She knew she had it. And, but it was, you know, like I said, the birth of her child that died and then Jim's birth, 37, wasn't so far apart. So, yeah, she had already been in a wheelchair. And I remember the story goes, um, the governor said to Mr. Seishiro Okazaki, okay, how much do I pay you? And um, Mr. Okazaki said, no, no. Papa Burns, he called him Papa Burns, don't give me money. I just want you to give him my name. So Jim's name was James Stanton Burns, but now the S legally has been changed to Seishiro. So if you go to the columbarium at Cemetery of the Pacific, you know, up at Punchbowl, you'll see his name is James Seishiro Okazaki because he was very proud of that name because this is a man who helped him to live Whereas his pregnancy, everybody said, you're going to lose your wife and your child. And here, both child and, and mother was fine. This was before the vaccine was developed. And so yes. she just made the best of her circumstances, you know, and she became yes. first lady uh, and she was seated uh, on her wheelchair. And, you know, she did go to the mainland for a little bit because they started to come up with treatments. And... So even though she didn't want to, she did. And she didn't like it. She didn't like being away from her kids. (laughs) So, I mean, she had little Jimmy, then she had Mary Beth and John Jr. And even in a wheelchair felt that this was her duty. She had to be here to help them. And, you know, when I listened to Jim over the years before he passed, he said, you know, I never saw my mother walk. I just saw her in a wheelchair. And so at the time that Governor Burns became governor, everyone knew, you know, his first lady was the first lady with a disability that's going to serve. But everybody I know who talked about her said after a while the wheelchair disappeared and she was able to, you know, entertain all these people. And Jim was always by her side. And he so was the one that carried her and brought her from car to wherever she wouldn't want anyone else to carry her and so gosh you know emmy as you as you recall this time you know and coming through this pandemic you know and the whole controversy over vaccines and and just these diseases that we're we're battling with these days i mean gosh you know what are your thoughts about polio and and the covid era of our lives (laughs) I just, you know, I mean, it it was unprecedented, of course, and I always felt, I know this is going to be controversial, a statement, but this was like a war, a germ warfare, you know, and it was against humanity, and, you know, the enemy was unseen. It's COVID. it's, It's all of that, and now that polio has come back, it makes you question, you know, what is it about diseases that have we gone so far in revolutionizing our technology and yet these diseases are coming back? I don't have the answer, but I find it interesting. Polio was preventable if you had the vaccine, but there's so many people that got the disease because the vaccine hadn't been developed yet. And so now that we do have a vaccine for COVID, there's still a lot of hesitancy. 
Yes, and I, you know, I grew up in the 50s, and I remember, you know, our TV shot, our polio shot. It was automatic. I mean, I don't think there was any child that said, no, no, I don't want it. Everyone just stood in line and got their shot. And, and it does make me sad that, I mean, I had to do a public service announcement to encourage Filipinos, mostly the ones from the Philippines, and they, you know, were hesitant to take any kind of vaccination. Part of it was because of, you know, being misinformed. I know of people that passed away. There was a very well-known couple, and they were at a church in Waipahu. He was the musical director, and she helped with the choir and singing, and yeah, Filipino couple. And they were like, I guess in their 70s, and they went to Vegas to celebrate their anniversary. They didn't want to be vaccinated, but they came home, and within a week, because they each got COVID, and within a week, I think, they, they, they died one week apart of each other. And it kind of stunned the people in the church. And so I think more people then were, you know, wanting to at least get vaccinated, but You know, it's amazing. Like I said, I'm growing up in the 50s, and everybody got vaccinated, no no questions. And today, it is worrisome that a lot of people are still hesitant for whatever reason, you know, not to take care of themselves, which also puts the rest of us in jeopardy. And like I said, I tried to do a public service announcement Mm -hmm. in Filipino. It sort of worked. I had people tell me, oh, yeah, I heard... Elokano and Tagalog on TV, and um, and and I think it, we have to work on the younger people to talk to their parents. I know this one young girl that I also had in my PSA. She said she lost a grandma, but she was the one that had to talk everyone else in her family. She was so she was just traumatized by her grandmother's death, which she then says could have been prevented, and so she would argue with her siblings and everyone and say if this is going to help save us and grandma didn't do it and it didn't save her why do we even question it and so finally i believe the whole family became vaccinated and nobody got sick it does make you pause and just reflect how we deal with adversity you know during this time I guess with closing thoughts at Mrs. Burns at a time when there was no vaccination, she did go to Shriners for a bit, and she did go to Queens. But I can tell you that in her latter years, in her final years, when I I helped take care of her and I lived with her, you never saw the wheelchair. I mean, she was just, she she was so independent. But I loved her attitude. Your you know, spirit. she says, I'm not going to let this wheelchair define me, and I don't want to be pitied upon. I want people to know me as I am. That was Emmy Tamimbang, part of our series of stories that cover the history of polio in the islands before there was a vaccine for the paralyzing disease.
That does it for today's World Polio Hanaho Show, featuring stories originally aired earlier this fall. If you missed any of this show or want to find a past one, find them on the conversation page. Look under HPR News and talk for the conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow. Pick up the conversation.